Hi, I'm the Strategist Cowboy. Today I'm going to review a Danish Pilsener and I'm going to put it up against Miller Genuine Draft. Ooh, there are practically no American alive and above 10 years of age who doesn't know what a Miller is. But it is not known because it is such a good beer. No, it's the brand's quantity of the market. It is a very cheap beer in America. On the other hand, the Danish beer is presumably not very exclusive either, since it is not very expensive to purchase. This week's two very plain beers are thus the Ekologisk Thy Pilsner or T Pilsner, perhaps, if it's Danish, and Miller Genuine Draft. Let's get ready to rumble! Our first contestant this week is thus the Die or T Pilsner assortment. A normal ABV Pilsner from the mainstream brewery Thiested Brugges or something in the northwest of Jylland. Jylland is the Danish peninsula. They have been brewing beers since the year 1902. This beer is an ecologic beer assortment, according to the brewery. Many of their beers are ecologic. Their first eco beer came out already in 1995, and it was this very beer assortment which I will review today. T is probably named after the national park in the vicinity of the brewery and not the other way around, so to speak. The beer assortment contains water, barley malt, hops, and yeast. So, no syrup? If not, that is a good thing. The best before date on this particular beer bottle is the, end, the, the 2nd of February, 2023. I purchased this beer in the very beginning of August 2022. It has been standing in my cooler since. At present date, it is early February 2023. It should be good enough, even if we have passed the best before date, barely. The bottle contains 33 centiliters, i.e. about 11 liquid ounces. The bottle labeling is two-folded and mostly green in color. It is a typical classic Danish Pilsner label. This beer cost me 18 Swedish kronor, i.e. about one US dollar and 70 cents. That is 62 cents per four ounces of beer. That is pretty cheap. 
The preferred serving temperature for the die Pilsner or three Pilsner is according to system blog 8 degrees Celsius, i.e. about 46 degrees Fahrenheit. The brewery says 5 to 7 degrees Celsius, i.e. about 41 to 45 degrees Fahrenheit, about preferred serving temperature. The die or the three Pilsner beer assortment has got a mere 4.6% ABV, 4.6%, but it is a normal ABV for a Pilsner. How about the experience then? A very good Pilsner aroma it is. I could pour up the whole beer in one try. It's about one and a half fingers tall head and it's light yellow in color pretty clear not 100 percent but it's clear enough i mean it's a pisner well first impression uh, i like how it not tastes like syrup or there is no punch in my solar plexus from this beer. Which is a good thing, because I don't want to be get, like to get punched in solar plexus, which is, is in the middle of your chest, of my chest, or your chest. Uh, is it rich? Well, Not very, but it is a Pilsner, 4.6%, so, okay. Um, it could have been perhaps a little bit more, uh, uh, what you say, full-bodied. But um, it's a, I, I, if I ever go to Denmark, and I will again, probably, I will order this beer before other Pilsners, many other Pilsners anyway. Particularly because it's it's got no syrup in it. It's not very yeasty, of course. It's filtered, for, so... Um, it, a little bit bread-like. It is. Yes, yeah. It's malty. Not very bitter at all. Taste on my palate, uh, it's a uh, Pilsner taste.
it's not very sweet at all not very much no i wouldn't say not very bitter uh, not very hoppy not candy like you know fruitiness uh, no spices it's a pilsner undertone the whole thing is a pilsner it screams pilsner carbonation level i don't think it's very high and of course it's not creamy and uh, it's not acidic and there are no aberrations especially not syrup good for you thai pilsner it's um, filtered Not much more to say about it, I guess. Uh, nice Pilsner, good Pilsner. What about grading then? How many devils do I grade this beer? Well, For a Pilsner, if, it, if I only compare it to other Pilsners, I think I'd grade this beer 8 tables out of 10 possible. Uh, yeah, but for a beer, any beer, Five devils out of ten possible. I think that is where I will grade it. Perhaps a little bit, little bit harsh when compared to other pilsners, but um, it's a, uh, it's, uh, yeah. That's where I grade it. Okay, let's move on to our next contestant. Our second contestant for this week is the Miller Miller Genuine Draft from the Miller Brewing Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, west of Michigan Lake, USA. The city is about the same size as Gothenburg population-wise. The Miller Brewery was founded in 1855 by a guy named Frederick Miller. The ingredients in the Miller Genuine Draft Beer assortment are water, barley malt, hops, and yeast. The best before date on this particular beer is January 6, 2023, depending on if it is an American best before date. If it is a European best before date, it is June 1, June 1st, 2023. At present date, it is early February 2023, but I really think it is the European best before date since I purchased this beer bottle, this particular beer in Sweden. And because it comes in a European standard size bottle, and most important, because it is licensed brewed in Europe. I purchased it in very early August 2022. It has been standing in my cooler 
which is located in a dark place, since. The Miller Genuine Draft Beer assortment comes in a size 33 centiliters, i.e. about 11 liquid ounces bottle. It is a European size on this bottle from Miller. The two-folded bottle labeling has got a bald eagle icon at the top of the main label. Excuse me. The actual bottle is clear, no color in the glass at all. The name Miller is embossed in several places on the bottle. It also says cold filtered for smoothness, embossed in two places on the bottle. The Miller Genuine Draft Beer assortment costs 16 Swedish kronor, i.e. one US dollar and 50 cents. That is 55 cents per four ounces of beer. Cheap, cheap. The beer is licensed brewed in the Czech Republic. It surely must make a difference in price that it hasn't been hauled all the way from the Great Lakes in the US and then loaded on trucks here in Sweden and delivered to sustainable August stores. Systemblogget says that the preferred server temperature on this beer is 8 to 10 degrees Celsius, i.e. about 46 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. The brewery's website says nada about the preferred server temperature. The Miller Genuine Draft beer assortment has got a 4.7% ABV, 4.7%. How about the experience then? Not so good aroma. But a one finger tall head, barely a one finger tall head. And it's very clear in color. Orangey, yellow, more yellow clear, yellow clear or in color, in color. And oh, I can see my, it's like a magnifying glass actually. I can see my fingers in the on the other side of the glass like it's a, in a magnifying glass okay first impression ah, it's not very much of a beer not lousy but uh, yeah it's not very Full-bodied or rich, it's not. Um, not very bread-like either, and not yeasty. But it's malty. The aroma is like um, old food sweat. Not just food sweat, but old food sweat. Or my underpants when used. <laughs> I, just, I, I usually don't sniff on my underpants, but what can I say? 
it's, I, it's just a, an estimation of uh, what my underpants is uh, smelling like. After a day's wear. Uh, anyway, uh, taste on my palate. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually kind of smooth in the taste uh, on my palate. It's, 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 it is. It's not. Um, it's not sweet and it's not dry, so it's some, somewhere in between. In between. It's not uh, bitter at all or no hoppiness. It's not bitter and there's no hoppiness in it. I can sense. Uh, well, slightly bitter but very little of course beer beers are bitter but not very much in this one it's not candy like it's not fruity there are no spices and the undertone is um, smoothness of, of some kind the carbonation level is low i think and of course it's not creamy but it's not acidic and there are no uh, well i wouldn't say that there are any aberrations in it, aberrations in it but uh, it's uh, it's got some um by taste. Some um, something is not syrup, so but uh, uh, I don't know actually what I can call this taste but i wouldn't say that there are any aber aberrations in it certainly not pine needle anyway and it's um, light roasted uh, and it's filtered of course but uh, let's see here uh, Huh. I don't know what it is. It's just something. But I, I, I don't know what. So what about grading then? I grade this beer. It's a lager beer, so um, actually better than I thought it would be. But still not very good. But I have to grade this beer. Um, five devils out of ten possible. Uh, it's in the middle of uh, the beers. Actually, surprisingly high uh, grading 
I gave it. Surprisingly high grading. Uh, but uh, it's uh, well, what can I say? Absolutely don't drink and operate heavy machines, military or civilian. Drink responsibly or not at all. Don't drink at all if you're underage or pregnant. But before we move on to this week's lesson, I'd, I'd like to say that the Miller Genuine Draft has got a not-so-pleasant aftertaste. But uh, enough about that now, let's, let's move on. My name is Roger Klang, and this lesson I call Clarification of Clausewitz's Term Friction of War. There seems to be a general confusion in explanations of the concept of the friction of war. As far as I understand, the friction of war is equivalent to the friction that happens between two opposing forces. And it will work against both of these forces. But the party that has less good conditions will not prevail. Friction occurs just as much in sports contexts. Take, for instance, the example of ice hockey. Two teams have different conditions to win a match. Leadership and organizational culture. The regulations on training frequency. Type of material and equipment. Technique. Team play and individual player skill. And, of course, scouting and intelligence gathering are crucial to which team will win. The same goes for warfare. Distance, sea, landscape, terrain and environment, season, weather and numbers also play a role in who will win a war between states. This is how the military strategic doctrine for Schwarz Martin and Tour describes frictions. Quote, frictions can be described as unpredictable events that in whole or in part thwart the desired or expected course of events. End quote. All wars not initiated by a surprise attack have a mutual escalation phase. On paper, the enemy starts the war by preemptive combat with long-range standoff weapons. In reality, Putin has to take into account the psychological dynamics, which probably means that he has to hold back on preemptive action. At least that was what I used to think. A possible scenario, if we have a defense on Gotland worth the name, is that Russia in the force build-up phase threatens us outside our territorial waters 
in the base at Slite and Jirgan to show power. LHDs with combat command slash if hub slash floating hospital slash helipad helipad provide a clear advantage. They can also use the Admiral Gorskog class as a long-range anti-aircraft platform for both naval and ground forces right from day one. I have put a lot of emphasis in my books on linking and sensors like satellite-based sensors, phased array OTH radars, aerostat sensors, fixed 3D universal radar systems, air reconnaissance radars, target measuring and sensor-linked UAVs, etc. But I don't want us to neglect the weapon systems that we need to procure. So I prioritized the procurement of OTH-SW early warning radars, synthetic aperture sonar on ships for aiding the transfer of heavy equipment on, and crew to Gotland, and a few target measuring and linking aerostat sensor systems. But linking and target measuring UAVs are also highly prioritized. One should gradually introduce relevant weapon systems combined with suitable sensors. But God forbids that one develops or purchases sensors and target measurement equipment and in the process forgets about the weapons. Weapon systems that can target using fire guidance must always be prioritized for purchase over target measuring sensor systems. Then we can build on that with target measurement systems when we consider ourselves able to afford it. A defense built on sensor systems is no defense at all. It is just one big early warning organization which cannot fight back in the event of an attack. Having a lot of sensors for monitoring and early warning is nice, but these must be built around the weapons systems, such as OTH-SW radar for the Air Force, which is an important priority. In some cases, you have to combine the purchases of sensors and weapon systems, such as with the IRST-SL system and Giraffe-4A or Aster 30 and Giraffe 8A and 4A. The point with early warning systems, sensor systems, and target measuring systems is to be able to optimize the weapon systems. When you cannot optimize the weapon systems with the help of sensors, the sensor, sensors are not prioritized either. Forewarning is good, but it cannot be allowed to become the decisive criterion for our operational art. In the long term, however, we should work for a complete and robust sensor and network-based defense when we also have the weapon systems. A good officer bases his operational skills on tactical reality conditions. This is probably why the Lieutenant General rank has one more star 
than a major general rank. A good leader with the rank of colonel occasionally share location with his soldiers, close to the center of the action. For a staff officer, it's a little bit different. A staff officer's organization at all times makes every effort to gain knowledge of what is happening and what it looks like at the center of events. He must ensure that frontline personnel are serviced without losing focus on the strategic situation. Scouting, reconnaissance, UAV reconnaissance, IMINT, and other information gathering such as signals intelligence on enemy activities is necessary. Without scouting, no idea. In order to get a tactical overview, scouting is required. Offensive warfare requires reconnaissance. Operational art requires SUAVs. Strategic planning requires satellite reconnaissance and imint at a level above information gathering with SUAV. A good officer must be a good communicator. This quality includes leadership qualities, leadership qualities, popularity, self-awareness, a sense of reality, dynamic thinking, and a responsible approach to one's own soldiers and the civilian population. In addition to these qualities, solid knowledge, a contemplative mind, courage, and intuition are needed. The leader does well to write books or dissertations of his on his subject area. Clausewitz expressed himself this way about intuition and communication. Quote, in their actions, most people just follow their intuition, which is more or less right, depending on how much talent is involved. This is how all great Feldherren have acted and this is partly where their greatness and genius lay. So that through this intuition, they always act correctly. It will also remain so in all actions. And this spontaneous feeling is completely sufficient in this context. If it is not about acting, but advising and convincing others, it is about being logical and showing the smaller contexts. End quote, page 24 in On War by Carl von Clausewitz. A modern professional strategist can hardly play a Viking or medieval strategist with the same success as the top strategists of that time. A contemporary strategist is still the same type of person as the typical strategist of previous generations. But he is tied to his own era. I assume that Viking or medieval strategists would likewise not be able to achieve the same success on the modern battlefield as today's top strategists. 
it would require very great ambitions and efforts because each generation lacks the time typical knowledge of another generation. And this probably comes from the fact that the tactical slash combat technical knowledge, the logistical knowledge and the material knowledge, etc., is missing. All strategists are locked to their era. I am one of the very few who put Sweden at the center of a war here in more northern latitudes. Describing our strategic situation and coming up with solutions on how to deal with it, how to respond to various tactical capabilities operationally with the existing weapon systems, target finders and sensors we have and should develop or purchase to respond to an ima imagined enemy is 10 times more difficult than just describing our strategic situation and how we are affected by the tactical and operational means an enemy might have. And it takes a much longer time to do so. If we add several possible enemies, the degree of difficulty increases exponentially. We Swedes appear rather blunt compared to the Israelis and Germans, if you have to compare professional works, perhaps mainly compared to the Israelis. But this is largely due to the, another factor that must not be overlooked. It's the same factor that makes the Icelanders appear rather blunt, even though they're not. This factor is made up of the deficiencies in defense capabilities compared to an outside world that seems to have unlimited resources and many times more inhabitants with all that it entails. Iceland has e.g. no defense at all beyond an old target gun on a coast guard ship. We have a weak defense and we are a small country in terms of population in which, on which great strategic weight is placed. Iceland is an even smaller country. I usually say that strategy is a luxury that belongs to the victorious, but you might as well say that strategy is a luxury that belongs to those superior in material. We are simply losing our options because we cannot deal with Russia successfully, successfully without adding exorbitant resources to the armed forces as the politicians see it. As a result, our strategic thinking becomes defensive and we are forced to take two steps back into the civil defense for every step forward, which means that we score self-goal after self-goal. Now, one could argue that Israel is in the same situation as we are. And that may be true, but they do not have such qualified opponents against them. But to some extent, they are in our situation. It is also noticeable in their actions and psychology. The psychology of the Icelanders is reduced 
to regurgitating the Icelandic sagas and prose and romanticizing the Viking Age. They are completely at the mercy of Britain in harsh and economic terms. But if Iceland had been as large and populous as Germany, there would have been no question that the dependency relationship would have been the other way around. At the very least, Iceland could have planned for its own future in a completely different way. Now they cannot control their future at all. I think you can safely say that our situation is like being alone inside of a big immigrant gang, where the gang members struts around you practicing karate kicks. Someone puts out a knife and threatens to kill you, but someone else asks for a cigarette to see how you're holding together. Most often, the victim is ugly, disabled, and easy to demean. Generally, they try to psych you out as a single Swedish man so that you will break down, start trembling, and be humili humiliated. The ability to resist such psychological warfare as a lone Swedish man inside of a gang is crucial for how well one can imagine a solution to our strategic vulnerability and not just describe our situation. I can in six points explain how to think in such a situation. One, what to do to win. Two, who should you direct your attack on in order to win? Three, when should you make the shock attack? Four, or should you be street smart and withdraw before you even end up in that situation? Five, is there any opportunity to withdraw and is it realistic to believe that they will not follow you? Six, do you have more to lose than to gain by withdrawing? How many of us holds together in such a situation? If the worst were to happen, it is not as difficult as one might think to crack an immigrant gang. They appear like a well-oiled machine out to humiliate you, but they are made up of individuals with built-in fears. They are actors, and the whole thing is a well-arranged spectacle. That's not to say that the outcome can't be tragic due to their lack of empathy. It is insights like these that were the reason why our forefathers did not fear the Muslims. The Muslim immigrants in Sweden at the time must have felt that we Swedish men totally humiliated them when we actually showed ourselves to be men in a way that they were nowhere near. But the price for these insights of ours has been extremely high for us Swedish men. The Swedish men of the Wendel era, era did not get any respect from the men of the world. But those Swedes who came after put the Muslims in their place. I had eaten no such insights before May 1990 and the social turbulence in the country. It came as a sudden realization in the days after the social upheavals began with flash and thunder and the folk came was ruined. Since then, 
No immigrant alone or in a group has sat upon me. Because after all, they need to have both their women on their side, our women on their side, and they need to be in gangs and like to be armed, and you need to be ugly for them to dare to measure up to a single Swedish Viking. Therefore, we have had this wave of attacks on women in Sweden, where the women have, have become victims instead of Swedish Vikings. It is part of the psychological warfare, but we know them, we know them inside and out. We know them better than they know themselves. It is also why the criminals started to arm themselves with guns. And this is why I refuse to surrender to the whole of the world. Thank you and see you later, alligator, at a while, crocodile. Mm -hmm.